God is sovereign. He does exactly as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, everywhere he pleases. So he's all powerful, all wise, all loving and all good, so we will always do the right things. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Daniel 4, Marty, you can turn me up or down as I get rolling here. We get kind of, you know, excited as we go. Anyway, uh, most of you probably are grateful that God is a very patient God. You're here because He's a patient God, right? Say yes, I know, I know, yeah. So we're, today we're in Daniel chapter 4, and the first four chapters really focus about God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. Over about a 35-year period, God worked with Nebuchadnezzar, and he's been working with most of us at least that long. So God began to intervene in Nebuchadnezzar's life in about 605 B.C. when he sent Daniel to Babylon as a captive slave about 16 years old. And chapter 1, as you recall, we've been through that three weeks ago, records that Daniel and his three friends refused to defile themselves with the king's food and drink, etc., And as a result, God gave them an enormous amount of insight and wisdom to be of an assistance to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar recognized the greatness of God because of the supernatural wisdom that he gave Daniel and his three friends. Chapter 2, God sent Nebuchadnezzar a dream about four subsequent world empires, and it explains the bulk of Gentile world history from about 605 B.C., and we're still in that period today. And no one else could interpret the dream, remember, but God gave Daniel insight to interpret the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar praised the God of Daniel for the wisdom that he gave him. Chapter 3, last week, records that Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he had a big ego, and he built a statue of himself and commanded the entire country to fall down and worship it. And as you recall, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to worship that statue. And as a result, they were thrown into the fiery furnace and they were preserved through that flames by the angel of the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar once again praises God for his supernatural power in delivering them. So God is exposing Nebuchadnezzar to the truth of who he is. And he's using people like you and I. These were all teenage boys at this point in time. Now the events of chapter 4 we're going to look at today take place about 25 to 30 years after the events of chapter 3. There's about 25 to 30 year gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Several scholars estimate that chapter 4 took place about 570 B.C., before Christ. Nebuchadnezzar was born in 634 B.C., so chapter 4 takes place. Nebuchadnezzar's about 64 years old. Daniel's about 50 years old. He was born in 620. Now, you may or may not know, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, pretty long time on the throne, from 605 to 562, and by the time this chapter takes place, Nebuchadnezzar has built an enormous amount of Babylon. He was a warrior king, but he was also a fantastic builder. He built the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. We'll talk about those in a little bit. This chapter is unique in Scripture. It's autobiographical, so it's written by Nebuchadnezzar, largely in the first person, But it's also an official court document, an official empire document, if you will. Kind of came out of the king of Babylon. It's distributed throughout the empire. So it's like a piece of legislation passed by the Congress and distributed throughout the nation. So it's an official document. It's also his spiritual autobiography. It records how he came to faith in the God of Israel. It's the only chapter in the Bible written by a Gentile king. So it's a unique chapter in Scripture, probably edited a little bit by Daniel, as we'll see in a couple minutes. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 4, verse 1. I, Nebuchadnezzar, the king 
to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live on all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Here's the principle. God is sovereign. He does exactly as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, everywhere He pleases. Got that? Let me say it again. God is sovereign, which means He does exactly as He pleases, only as He pleases, always as He pleases, everywhere He pleases. Now, for those of us that know Him and are saved by His Son, this is very comforting. This infuriates the world. Because people that don't know Jesus want to be sovereign themselves. They want to do exactly as they please, only as they please, always as they please, everywhere they please. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to find out that he is not sovereign. And if you live long enough, you will find out that you are not sovereign either because God will outlive you. Got that? All right, just make sure. So this chapter is a royal decree issued by Nebuchadnezzar following his recovery from God's judgment, which we're going to review here in just a couple minutes. And it's written to all the peoples in all the earth. Now that's shorthand for everybody in my kingdom. In truth, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over a pretty significant chunk of real estate at this point. His kingdom extended from the Red Sea and Egypt, think of Egypt in the southwest, all the way up through northern Israel, Lebanon, into what is modern-day Turkey, and then you head east and south, over to the Persian Gulf. So it's like this giant crescent, you know, the fertile crescent, you learned that in fifth grade. He ruled over all of that. And he says, I have seen signs and wonders from the God of Israel. Well, yes, we've talked about that the last three weeks. Usually refers to supernatural events. I would say rescuing from a fiery furnace, interpretation of dreams, those are supernatural events. So Nebuchadnezzar has experienced enough of God's miracles to become convinced that God is in fact eternal and rules over an eternal kingdom. And he describes God in verse 1, 2, 3, 4. He says, verse 2, God is the most high God. And what he's talking about is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty means God has the right to govern and control the universe which he created. The sovereignty of God is the exercise of his supremacy. Sovereign means supreme. It means he is the supreme ruler, no one higher. And it says omnipotence in action. God is not subject to anyone. God never asks permission to do anything. He also never asks advice. He didn't call me up this week and say, Brad, I need your opinion about this. I'm thinking about doing this. I just want to make sure it's the right thing to do. I don't think he called you either. He didn't call you either. You know something? He didn't need to. He doesn't need any input. He doesn't need any permission. Ephesians 1 says, God, according to his purpose, works all things after the counsel of his will. Which means since he's all-knowing, he doesn't need input. And since he's all-good, he will always do what is right. So God is all-powerful. And he's all good. He always does whatever he chooses, and he always does the right thing. So the theme of this chapter is really the sovereignty of God. And just to make sure no one misses it, this theme is repeated three times in this chapter. If you have your Bible open, it's in verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32, and he repeats it word for word. In order that the living may know, quote, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's the theme of this chapter, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to find this out. Chapter 4, I mean chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions of my mind kept alarming me. Verse 8. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. Now, you recall from a couple of weeks ago, he had another dream in chapter 2. 
God was speaking to him. Well, God's going to talk to him again in this dream in chapter 4. And he says, I, I was at ease. That means he's not at war. He wasn't, you know, the, the empire is at peace. And he says, I was flourishing. The Hebrew there means he's growing like a green plant. Now, if you try and garden, at least when I try and garden, the things I want to grow and flourish don't. But you know what grows really well on my two acres without any help? Weeds. They don't need any help. They flourish. And, of course, I'm looking at the rain and I'm saying, well, that means I'm going to have a lot of weeds to deal with. That's when you have dirt, you have weeds. That's part of the territory. So it, it means ex, it, flourishing and growing extensive foliage and fruit. And the dream of the statue a couple of weeks ago, or two weeks ago, we talked about that, it troubled him. This dream terrified him. I mean, it was a nightmare. He was really, really upset. And as you recall, he calls all the counselors in the kingdom, all his wise advisors, the brain trust his cabinet, and he says, can you help me understand what this dream is? And just like they failed in chapter 2, they're going to fail here. They have no idea what the interpretation is. They're unable to unravel the mysteries of it. And it says, finally, Daniel shows up. And of course, you're saying, why didn't you call him up front? I mean, he's got a pretty good track record. Every time you have a problem, he comes in and solves it. Why do you wait till the end? Well, I think when Nebuchadnezzar, you'll see with his dream, I think he figured out it was bad news. And he knew Daniel had a reputation for telling the truth. Have you ever known anybody that tells you the truth and so you don't bother asking for their input because they're going to tell you what you don't want to hear? That was this guy. He's going, Nebuchadnezzar goes, I know what he's going to say. I'm in him trouble. And so I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. So, you know, he was pretty proud, and he didn't want to deal with it. He didn't want to deal with Daniel's God either. So he uses both names, Daniel, which, of course, the Hebrew name, and the Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, it means Bel, protect his life. The chief god of, of, the, of the Babylonians was Bel Marduk. And he says Daniel is described in, in this book several times as having a spirit of the holy gods. Now, that is a pagan reference to the fact that Daniel is filled with a supernatural spirit. The Bible tells us that's the Holy Spirit. And you who know Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit who informs you and guides you and gives you wisdom and tells you what not to do. That's called your conscience, among other things, and the Spirit obviously informs that conscience. But they didn't know that at that point, so they simply, the pagans, Nebuchadnezzar and his, his empire, they said, this guy's got supernatural insight. He must have connections with this extra dimension, you know, the, where the gods are, the dwelling place of the gods. And the word holy means set apart. So they knew that something was very different about Daniel because he had insight that no one else had, and he's been exercising that now since he was a teenager. So he's been in Babylon for 30-plus years and has 30 years of service of doing things that no one else can do because the Holy Spirit indwelled him at that point. So Nebuchadnezzar is now going to tell him the dream, verse 10. He says, Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, <clears throat> there was a tree in the middle of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew strong and large, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from the tree. Now, in ancient times, a tree was often used as a metaphor for a ruler, for a king and a kingdom. So the larger the tree, the more powerful the king and the more powerful the kingdom. And in this case, Nebuchadnezzar said, this tree reached the sky which means it was a super kingdom, literally a growing and great kingdom. And the purpose of the tree was to provide food and protection for the animals that would shelter under it. So the metaphor here is pretty clear. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar as this tree and gave him this large kingdom for the benefit of those in his empire. Problem, start in verse 13. I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, 
Strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him, This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know, here's the key thought of this chapter, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. So this angelic watcher is an angel from heaven. Nebuchadnezzar sees this angel... Now, this is not news to Nebuchadnezzar. Earthly kings had watch people as well, watchmen, and people who would accomplish their will, keep an eye on their kingdom, serve as eyes and ears, and carry out their bidding. Angels means messenger, and angel simply is a servant of the Lord that does what the Lord wants. And the angel seems to be describing the tree. And you're going, okay, that's well and good. But in verse 15, it changes to him. And now they're talking about a person. And here's where Nebuchadnezzar's getting serious heartburn because he knows now this angelic watcher cut down the tree means cut down his kingdom, right? And this judgment is on Nebuchadnezzar himself. And the purpose of the divine sentence is so that all people would know that God is sovereign over the realm of all mankind. By the way, have you figured out that God doesn't need us to do his work? He uses us, but he doesn't need us. Sometimes we think we're indispensable. Lord, if I don't get this done, it's not going to get done. You know, his work got done before we were born, and his work will get done after we're gone. But he invites us to be part of his work. God doesn't need people, even strong and smart people. As a matter of fact, he says, I set the lowliest, the humblest of people in positions of authority. So the the first four chapters are all about God's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. And the first three chapters, God's been trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar a lesson regarding his pride and his arrogance, and he refuses to listen. So chapter four is an increase in the strength of the lesson. Have you discovered that? That if you don't learn it when God whispers, he can raise his voice right? And if you still don't listen, he increases the pain point until we do listen. So I plead with you, and I plead with me too, listen early. Why would you want him to shout? Why not just listen to his whispers? So God's going to send him a pretty strong lesson. It's so strong that Daniel is appalled, verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded that said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel, answered and said, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. So he tells Daniel the dream, and Daniel apparently turns white as a sheep and doesn't say anything. Well, if you can read body language and facial expressions, you know that it's bad. As a matter of fact, it's so bad that Daniel doesn't even say anything until Nebuchadnezzar says, it's okay, you can, you can talk to me. Tell me what it means. It appears that Daniel had grown very fond of the king and didn't want him to suffer. I mean, he's been serving him for 32, 33 years now. So Daniel's going to deliver the bad news. But I want you to know something. He doesn't deliver the bad news with joy. He delivers it with sorrow because he loves the king. He's a faithful servant of the king. You know, when you tell people the gospel that Jesus died for them in order to save them from the penalty of sin and death and hell, we should do that with great tenderness and not great joy. Don't ever be happy over someone's judgment. Never rejoice over someone's getting theirs. In other words, you know, it should break our hearts when people are judged and experience the wrath of God. That should break our hearts. 
We have a culture that is so self-righteous that when someone's canceled, we go, yeah, they deserve it. Hammer them, those blank, blank, blank. And of course, they say the same thing about other people. That's not from God. God is a God of love. It does not delight God to judge evil people. He loves people, but he's a just God, so he will always do the right thing in judgment, but it doesn't delight him. He loves to save people. And so we should, it should break our hearts when people are doing things that are going to involve judgment, and we should pray for their repentance, and that's what Daniel does. Verse 20, Daniel's now going to tell him the dream. First, he's going to recite part of the dream to him to make sure Nebuchadnezzar knows he got it. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Now the reality at this point in time, Nebuchadnezzar's empire has been growing and growing and growing because he's been involved in conquest, and it involved a great geographical arena and a lot of people groups. The majesty and splendor of the city of Babylon was unparalleled in ancient times, and not even probably in our current time. Now, let me just give you a word picture. The city of Babylon proper was not very large. It was about four square miles, two by two, two miles by two miles. That's the proper city of Babylon. The region surrounding the city proper, the suburbs, was enclosed by a brick wall that was around 40 miles long. So if you think about a brick wall enclosing the suburbs, not just the city proper, but the suburbs, that was a 40-mile-long brick wall. The height of that wall was about 75 to 100 feet tall. It was made out of glazed brick, and it was about 85 feet wide, somewhere between 70 and 80 feet wide. We have multiple historian, historical observers that wrote, you could drive a four-chariot, four-horse-wide chariot on top of the wall and turn it around. So that gives you kind of an idea, and that comes from more than one source. Four horses, wide chariot, riding on the top of the wall, and you could turn it around. And there were obviously numerous defensive towers built into the wall. I've read reports as many as 250 of these towers. There was obviously gates and portcullises, and it was surrounded by a large moat. And the large moat was fed by the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River ran under the walls of the city, and you literally could not starve the city into submission because they had water coming in all the time. So it was a very, very defensively protected city. We'll get into that in great detail in about four weeks. So Nebuchadnezzar had built the famous hanging gardens uh, for his wife, Amethyst. She was the Median, Mede from the country of Mede, and she missed her homeland in Persia. So he built these hanging gardens. First thing he did is, as near as we can tell, he built a 400-foot-high man-made mound in the middle of the city. And on that, he built numerous terraces and flat roofs and built these hanging gardens, had piped water, pumps, waterfalls, the whole nine yards. So it was really a wonder at that point in time, and he was pretty proud of that. And he evaluated the success of his kingdom by power, wealth, majesty, glory, building, conquest, all these earthly things. And he really thought that the purpose of this kingdom was to reflect his own greatness. It was all about me. That was his orientation. And I'm sure you know people like that. And if you don't know them personally, if you read the news feed, you hear about them all the time. Now, that was not the reason God raised up the Babylonian Empire. It wasn't for Nebuchadnezzar's glory. God gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom to provide for the needs of others, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand the difference between stewarding or managing something which belongs to somebody else and ownership is something belonging to him. You know and I know that we own nothing. We manage everything. You know how come you don't own anything? Because you're going to die and leave it. All. 100%. I will too, right? But he really thought he owned the empire. He failed to understand that God entrusted it, but God owns it. In reality, God raised up this empire for one primary reason. To defeat, capture, and ultimately to preserve 
his people, the Jews, in Judah. Nebuchadnezzar was God's chosen instrument to discipline his disobedient people, the Jews, but also to preserve them in the land so that in 70 years they could go back and rebuild their homeland, the promised land, the land of Canaan. Daniel continues in verse 23. And in that, the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. Verse 25. You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until, the sovereignty theme again, you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 26 and in that it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Here's the principle. God is patient. His purpose in discipline is not destruction but restoration. God is patient. His purpose in discipline is not destruction but restoration. Discipline, by the way, means training. Nebuchadnezzar was the tree that God was going to chop down because of his arrogance, but his stump was not uprooted. The stump was left in the ground and was going to be protected by a fence of iron and bronze. What that really means probably is that when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind and went insane, they probably put him in one of the royal parks in Babylon. There were multiple parks there, and those were surrounded by fences and it protected his life, which the stump means there's going to be future life and growth which means, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is going to be restored to you after seven years of insanity. So there was hope in that verse. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was arrogant, and he was convinced the Babylonian Empire was as a result of his own hands. I built this sucker myself. He denied any help, any, any contribution of wealth, power, glory, and majesty from God. He saw himself as all-powerful, not God. And God's judgment was always perfectly just, but also interestingly, very poetic. Nebuchadnezzar treated everybody else as inferior beasts, and he saw himself as the all-powerful, almighty one. And now he was going to be acting like and be treated like a beast himself. He had what we call zoanthropy. It's a form of mental illness. It's where a person believes they are an animal and acts like it. It probably was boanthropy, which is a condition where the person believes that they're cattle because it says he ate grass like an ox. So he lived outside, probably in one of the royal parks for seven years, and he ate grass. We've observed this uh, in contemporary times. He wouldn't have the sense to seek shelter, so it says he's going to be drenched when it rains, which means he lived outside like an animal did at that point in time. And his, God's judgment on him for his pride was enforced humility. Have you ever been humbled? No, but God's judgment on us is exactly what we need when we need it. And one of the, one of the ways he, you know, the Lord loves us and he knows exactly the kind of discipline we need to get our attention, to train us. Whether it's unemployment, whether it's illness, whether it's broken relationships, whatever it happened to be, but God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar was not designed to destroy him. It was to restore him. It was to break him of his pride so we could entrust him with greater um, ministry in the future. He was to be humiliated for seven years, and it says you will be restored when? When you acknowledge that God is sovereign and not you. So this was a period of time, but a limited period of time. Now Daniel, of course, doesn't want this to happen to the king, and he says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, 
and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Here's the principle. Genuine repentance may delay or rescind God's judgment. Genuine repentance may delay or rescind God's judgment on sin. So God had a treatment plan for Nebuchadnezzar's sin. And Daniel told him, stop sinning. That would be a good start, right? When you're in a hole, the first thing to do is stop digging. When you're sinning, that would be stop doing that and start doing righteousness. Turn away from evil, turn toward God. You know, one of the curses of arrogance is that proud people often believe that poverty is a sign of inferiority. And wealth is a sign of superiority. I'm rich, therefore I'm smart. And I'm richer than you, therefore I'm smarter than you. Ever met anybody like that? And then you find out they inherited their wealth? Yeah, right? So it appears that Nebuchadnezzar was oppressing the poor. It appears that he needed to start showing mercy to the poor because God called him out for that. So the comforting thing here is that even though judgment for sin is decreed, repentance from sin and returning to God can delay God's judgment or even rescind it. Remember Jonah, the prophet, who God said about 100 years before this, you go to Nineveh and declare judgment on them? And Jonah said, let them fry and you know where, right? I mean, he wanted God to wipe them out. But after he went through the belly of a whale, you know, lost all his hair, got his skin bleached white, he went to Nineveh and said, yet 40 days and then it will be overthrown. And you know something? They repented. They all went in sackcloth and ashes. And Nineveh was a very violent place. They're very cruel. The Assyrians were very cruel. They figured out ways to torture you that were unimaginable. But at any rate, they sat in sackcloth and ashes and God withheld his judgment. He said, you've repented. I'm not going to judge you even though I said I would because you repented. That's what I was looking for. I wanted the right relationship with you. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar did not repent before judgment came. Now, verse 28 to 33 are not written by Nebuchadnezzar. They're probably written by Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar didn't write these because he's out of his mind at this point in time. All of this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until, third time, sovereignty theme, you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew as heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Here's the principle. Pride is insane because it denies the reality that God alone rules and that he alone is to be worshipped. Let me say that again. Pride is insane because it denies the reality that God alone rules and he alone is to be worshipped. Now, what's interesting is what's not said. In chapter 2, when Daniel declares the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he's rewarded, right? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar elevates him, gives him lots of rewards. This time, you hear nothing about Nebuchadnezzar's response. So when Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar the bad news, apparently it makes no impact on Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't change a thing. It seems as though he forgot the dream entirely because the next verse says 12 months have passed by. It's a year later since he heard the dream and it made no impact on him when Daniel told him, stop doing the stuff you're doing and start changing your ways because you see him walking, probably on this man-made mountain 
overlooking the view in the hanging gardens, and he, then he makes an insane statement. I mean, really insane. He says, I've built this city by my might and my power for my glory and my majesty. Can you imagine trying to have a relationship with this character? I mean, it really is all about him, and you really had to deal with it, because if not, off with your head, and he could do that. We know he thinks he's worthy of worship, because chapter 2, he built a giant statue 90 feet tall of himself, and then said, everybody fall down and worship this. So we know he likes to be worshipped. It's nuts to think that you deserve the worship that belongs to God alone. That's insanity, because it's a denial of reality. See, pride is insane because it fails to comprehend reality. Sanity recognizes the reality of what is, what really is, and then lives in accordance with that reality. Here's the reality. God alone rules, and he alone is worthy of worship. Insanity says, I rule, I'm sovereign, and everybody worships me, and God is ignored. That's insanity. Pride exalts self in the place of God and ignores God or dethrones God. So the sin of pride separates humans from God. We know that, right? Pride was the initial sin of the Garden of Eden that it separated Adam and Eve and the whole human race from God ever since that period of time. God is the source of reality and sanity. Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride, is already spiritually insane because he's disconnected from the reality that God alone is sovereign. We live in a culture that in that sense is already insane. And when you look at the decisions our culture's making, not just the U.S., worldwide, they're insane because they don't make sense from what is. And what is, is that God is on his throne and he's accomplishing his purposes. And when we try and argue or fight or tell God we know better than he is, that's insane because he's all-knowing and all-loving. Pride claims the credit for what God created. So Nebuchadnezzar claims that he built the city of Babylon and he didn't realize that he was breathing God's air when he did it. And the fact that he had brain waves and a heartbeat, those were gifts from God that he just took for granted, and most people do today. So immediately, when he opened his mouth and made that insane pride statement, and says immediately a voice came from heaven and declared judgment, and he lost his mind at that point and began to behave like an animal. Says he even looked like an animal. Hair like eagle's feathers is very, you can imagine, very long hair, very neglected, very matted, very unkempt. He didn't trim his nails. They grew long like raptor claws. He probably, they literally probably put him out to pasture, literally in one of the royal parks for a period of seven years. Verse 34, but at the end of that period, the end of seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lived forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his generation endures from generation to generation. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36. At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me, for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his ways are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Here's the principle. Worship restores us to sanity, because it reconnects us to the reality of who God is and who we are. Worship restores us to sanity because it reconnects us to the reality of who God is and who we are. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar had really driven off the left rail. He thought he was God. He acted like he was God. 
and you say, well, I would never do that, you do it every day. Let me give you a quick illustration. Every time you do something without prayer, you're behaving as if you don't need God's input. I am embarrassed at how many things I do without praying about them. I mean, I'm embarrassed. Because I think I'm smart enough to deal with it without asking God's input. And you say, well, Brad, you shouldn't have to pray about doing the dishes. Well, that's true. I should just do the dishes. I get that. How about this one? How many of us open our mouth and let words fall out without asking God before we speak? Most of the time, I just change feet. You know, try and take the left one out, put the right one in. Yeah, I did, you know. Better sometimes, just Brad, shut up, say nothing. Ask God for wisdom before you speak. Very practical. Nebuchadnezzar now worships. He praises and honors God. He sees God actually for who he is, and therefore he sees himself in an accurate light for who he is, and he sees life as it really is. See, worship restores us to reality. One of the reasons we come to church every Sunday is because we have a vital life-giving connection to Almighty God through Jesus Christ. And to the extent that you think you can live life without that life-giving connection, you're delusional. We've already said you're breathing his air. Everything is a gift from him. So when we live life without acknowledging that, we're living a life of insanity because we're assuming that, of course, it's ours. It's not ours. It's a gift from him. That's why worship is so rational. Nebuchadnezzar says, I bless the Most High who lives forever. He says, you know, it's pretty clear that I'm not in charge. My gods are not in charge. My pantheon of he's a polytheist. He acknowledges that the God of Israel is the only God. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall. God's kingdom endures forever because God is eternal. Compared with God, he says, everybody on earth is is, as nothing. God does what he pleases. No one can stop his hands. Isaiah 46 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Psalm 135, verse 6. Jot that down. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Psalm 135, verse 6. See, sovereignty means you're free. You're not dependent on anyone. You do what you please, when you please, how you please. Most of us, matter of fact, 100% of all of us, are never going to be sovereign because we can't be trusted with sovereignty. If we had all power, we would make a hash of it with our first decision. Right? That's why sovereignty is not delegated to us, it remains only with Almighty God himself because he's the only one who's wise enough to manage that kind of power for the benefit of his creation. Obviously, he created, he knows how to run his universe. Nebuchadnezzar praises God not only for being powerful, but also completely being true and just. We know that's true in Revelation 15. The redeemed are praising God in heaven for his justice and his truth. Revelation 15, 3 says, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, the King of the nations. So God combines complete power and perfect love and justice and righteousness in one package. He's not only infinitely great, he's completely good. He's like the perfect father. He describes himself that way. That's why he's worthy of our trust. So when you read this, it's astonishing. This is the most powerful king on the planet at that point in time. He rejects his polytheism. He falls on his face and worships Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the one and true only God. And this confession of faith clearly can only come from the mouth of a follower of Yahweh. I fully expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Here's what's amazing. 
God has been working on him for 35 years at this point. Some of you have family and friends you've been praying for, which seems like an eternity. God is working on them because he loves them. You keep praying. God never gives up. He loves them more than you love them. You keep praying and God keeps working. And most of the work of the Holy Spirit is underwater. You don't see 99.9% of it. God is always working. And God is very patient. He loved Nebuchadnezzar enough that he, he sent Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego multiple dreams, multiple events to reach out to this man, to humble him from pride, to bring him into a right relationship, to restore him from the insanity of sin and pride and arrogance into the sanity of a right relationship with the God of glory. See, not only did Nebuchadnezzar regain his sanity, he regained his kingdom. I mean, think about this. That was a miracle. If he lost his mind and was put out to pasture in one of the rural parks, it would have been normal or any one of his rivals just have him executed. I mean, he just disappeared. You know, I mean, the guy was nuts. I mean, he just disappeared. He, he killed himself or whatever. You know, we see that happen all the time. Power corrupts, and the fight for power in high places has left a lot of bodies throughout the centuries. So God preserved him and preserved his kingdom. What's not said is that it's very likely that Daniel had a key role in this administration for the seven-year period when Nebuchadnezzar was insane kept the kingdom together, kept his life, protected his life, and planned for his return. Why would God take the trouble not only to do everything he did for Nebuchadnezzar because he loved him, why would he take the trouble to write it down for us? What's the point? I mean, why would God record this? What are we supposed to learn from that? Well, number one, it's not just about us. This was recorded largely for the Jews. The Jewish nations were captive in this land, in Babylon. God had said, you're going to be in captive for 70 years because you disobeyed me for centuries. And the Jews had been promised an eternal kingdom. And they're now captive. You think their faith was undergoing some stress? You think they began to doubt that maybe God is not going to be able to keep his words that he promised? And then they see and they read about how God deals with the most powerful monarch of the day. And God always keeps his word. And they saw that God would keep his word and be faithful to them to keep his testimony to them as well. And that's true for us as well. Our world worships political power and military might. We do. Why do you think people were willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to run for the city council? let alone an assembly seat or a senate seat? Why would we be willing to spend this much money to run for president? Because power and pride are endemic to the human heart. The first six chapters, we'll go through the next two, Lord willing, the next two weeks, every one of them ends with a powerful demonstration of the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God in the lives of an unbeliever. Through his people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when the Jewish nation and us see the power of God on display, it should strengthen our faith that God is busy working in our culture. I mean, if you were a Jew and you'd been enslaved for 55, 60 years in the land, you would say, I guess I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. There is no hope. Nebuchadnezzar's large and in charge. Where's God? Well, you see where God is. You see how God moves. I think it's really, really important that we focus on God and the Lord of glory through the power of Jesus Christ, his son, in our culture today. We live in a decaying culture. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to to look at our world and say, we're making some significantly foolish decisions because we are arrogant and we've told God we don't need his input and we're not going to live according to his laws. And so... We are spiritually insane. We need to be reminded that God is on his throne and God puts in power who he wants and God removes from power who he chooses according to his eternal purposes. 
not our short-sighted purposes, what we think we need for lunch this afternoon. He's viewing things from eternity. So this story, this narrative, should strengthen our faith as well as the Jews' faith, and it did. Okay, let's summarize, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, God is sovereign. He does exactly as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, everywhere he pleases. So he's all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, and all-good, so we will always do the right things. Number two, God is gracious. His purpose in discipline is not destruction, but restoration. If God disciplines your life, it's because he loves you and he wants to restore you to a relationship with him, and it's all motivated by his love. Number three, genuine repentance may delay or rescind God's judgment on sin. God does not delight in judgment. He delights in showing mercy. Number four, Pride is insane because it denies the reality that God alone rules and he alone is to be worshipped. And lastly, worship restores us to sanity because it reconnects us with the reality of who God is and who we are. When you worship on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whenever you happen to be worshiping, driving the car is a great time to worship, listening to the radio, etc., you're, when you do that, you're in a right relationship with the God of glory, and then you see yourself accurately, and you see him accurately. That is sanity. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.